I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimpston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello, Ben. How are you? I'm really good, Agnes. How are things? Good, thank you. Just come back from Easter Holes, haven't we? We have Easter Holes, as we call them. Mm-hmm. At Chatham House, it is kind of wonderful, isn't it? Because we get extra time off we, as Easter. We get the Thursday and the Tuesday off every year. I think it's to make the researchers feel like they're at a university. <laughs> I think actually, <laughs> so that we've got terms, you know. <laughs> I think technically it's a hangover from like the forties oh, when, right. like, the press cutting gals had to be able to go home to Kenya. So needed a longer period. I don't know. Of there's course. some. Yeah, there weird, must be some. There there's must... some weird like civil service hangover or something. Okay, cool. But how was your Easter? Yeah, it was good. It was quiet. Um, I went to see the Van Gogh at the Tate. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. very good. It was lovely. Mm, I, I got very that. annoyed with all the middle-aged people taking photos. Ooh, a bit of a faux pas. Uh, a folks pas. So they do it for every single one though. Mm. I behaved appallingly, Ben. Did you? Did you, in, tut? I tut, did you tut? I tutted so did much. Did you just stand in front of them, I just obstructing their... I just their, stood in front oh, of photos. Oh, their framing. Oh, my goodness. At one point, a woman did say, excuse me, in a very pointed way, and I turned around and said, why don't you just buy the catalogue? <laughs> or a postcard. Um, and stop wow. ruining everything for everything for everybody else. Oh, Honestly, though, wow. I didn't quite say that. It was implied. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Heavily implied. Oh, my goodness. I behaved appallingly, Ben. It does... <laughs> Honestly, it brought out the absolute worst in me. I just can't imagine that that would be the hill that you'd be prepared to die on. But, there, <laughs> but there apparently we are. it is. I know. <laughs> I had no idea. But people get so annoyed with, you know, young people taking photos at gigs. Yeah. But no. Or actually young people doing anything. Anything. Middle-aged people. <laughs> that my two big beefs are middle-aged people at exhibitions, ban mm. photos. Yeah. Because also it's going to be terrible, the photo you take. Yeah. Just take by a postcard. Yeah, it's like a ty- it's a type of tightness that I can't bear. Yeah, and also how do, how often do you do you sit at home and flick through your exactly. art collection on your yeah, on, on your, your phone. phone? And the other one is old people in cinemas. They're the worst. They talk so loudly, mm. like the loud whisper. Jeffrey, what's going on all the time? But we should probably oh, talk yeah, about cool. what's going on this episode. So Ben has run off without me. That wasn't necessarily planned, but it did happen. But it did just happen. And um, you've had, like, quite a really interesting but quite quite a hard recording session. Yeah, first say a bit, bit of a tough, yeah. bit of a tough episode this week, but really, really interesting. Yeah. So I spoke this week to Rita Dayub, who is an Academy Fellow here in the Centre for Global Health Security. And she is Syrian, and she has been... An, working for humanitarian organizations in Syria and South Sudan and Zimbabwe. And she is researching at the moment the impact of war on health workers in conflict zones and how health workers experience conflict and how often they're targeted and what more can be done to improve the security of health workers. And she runs a really interesting initiative called the Health Workers on the Frontline Initiative, Mm -hmm. which is a storytelling initiative. So she's gone out and collected stories of health workers, mostly at this point from Syria, about their experiences during the civil war and some of them are, yeah, I mean, it's pretty scary stuff. Yeah. But really, really important to get that local insight into something because so often the the solutions to these problems, governments try and fix them at the UN 
with big you know resolutions and international agreements and stuff but actually it kind of ignores reality on the ground mm. well or even you know you have charities like MSF who obviously do amazing wonderful mm. things but you're still talking about shipping in largely western workers and western western medics to yeah. war zones whereas actually speaking to sort of local medics mm. or like people from the region who are actually working on it is really important too Absolutely. So so I spoke to Rita about that and we've got, we translated some of the stories and we've got the recordings as part of the episode. Amazing. But what? we should probably warn people that it is in places a bit of a tricky lesson. Yeah, there's definitely a few distressing moments. Yeah. But... So if you're listening to this with small children in the background, maybe pause it for the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, but it's really, really worth a listen. So yeah. I hope you enjoy it. Brilliant. Many things changed since the beginning of the war, especially the security challenge. The risks changed all the time. They started by arresting the humanitarian workers. Then they became about targeting health workers by sniper bullets, shelling, and bombardment during evacuation operations. Then they became about fighter jets targeting hospitals and health centers in a systematic manner to a degree that health workers feel more at risk when inside a health facility than when they are in a military or security base, because hospitals were the places most likely to be targeted. This is what Eastern Aleppo witnessed, the same in Idleb, North Hama, Eastern Ghouta, and elsewhere. Those were the words of Ahmed Al-Dabes, a safety and security manager from the Union of Medical Care and Relief Organisations, who has lived life on the front line of the Syrian civil war. This week marks the anniversary of UN Security Resolution 2286, which calls for the protection and respect of healthcare workers in areas of conflict. It was adopted on the 3rd of May 2016, but today, even three years on, medical professionals are still some of the most targeted civilians in war zones around the world. I'm here with Rita Dayoub, an Academy Asfari Fellow in the Centre on Global Health Security at Chatham House, to talk some more about this. Rita has worked with relief organisations in Syria, Zimbabwe, Lebanon and South Sudan, and now leads the Health Workers on the Frontline initiative, which collects the experiences of medical professionals like Ahmed and seeks new methods and policies for ensuring their security. Rita, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me here. So I just thought we could begin by talking more about UN Security Resolution 2286. How did it come about and what was it seeking to achieve? So the Security Council Resolution 2286 came after a series of attacks against uh, hospitals and against health workers in different conflict zones. Just to name a few, there was the attack by the US Army on the MSF, uh, Doctors Without Borders, a hospital in Kunduz in Afghanistan that killed so many patients and health workers. And just few days before the adoption of the Security Council resolution, there was the killing of one of the few remaining uh, pediatricians in eastern Aleppo, in besieged eastern Aleppo at the time in Syria. So 
There was a lot of lobbying by certain governments, by international organizations, such as the International Committee of the Red Cross and uh, and MSF and others for the adoption of this resolution. It condemns uh, attacks against the wounded and sick, medical personnel and humanitarian personnel exclusively engaged in medical duties, their means of transport and equipment, as well as hospitals and other medical facilities in conflict zones. And it demands that all parties to conflict respect their uh, obligations under the international humanitarian law and the other international laws uh, to protect uh, healthcare, to ensure that healthcare is provided to the population in need um, in, in a very safe way. And so what was the existing international law that backed this up? So the resolution is not standing alone. It's built actually on several other resolutions that call for the protection of healthcare, health facilities, uh, health workers in conflict zones, including a resolution that calls for the protection of schools and hospitals and the Geneva Conventions uh, from 1949 and their additional protocols that call specifically for the protection of, uh, of healthcare in conflicts. And so what does it mean to to agree a resolution at the UN? What powers does a resolution have to enforce anyone to behave in a certain way? I think it's different. So it, each, each resolution has different powers and it depends on its language. It depends on uh, also on the governments that are that are backing it and uh, trying to operationalize it. This resolution provides a very strong framework for governments and parties of conflicts to take measures towards the protection of uh, healthcare. Well, it helps to solidify the international efforts that preceded it um, since 2011 and even before that. However, it is not binding, uh, so it urges parties to conflicts to, to comply by their obligations uh, to the international humanitarian law. And it also calls for uh, to end the impunity of uh, anyone or any party that actually commits any, any uh, attacks uh, against, against healthcare, healthcare facilities or workers in conflict zones. And in the three years since the resolution was adopted, have there been successes? Have there been instances where it's actually made a change for the good? Um, the resolution definitely helped to give the issue more visibility in, in the media. We see a lot of focus on reporting incidents, reporting attacks against healthcare. We've got uh, different, really systematic systems of recording uh, recording these attacks by different health organizations, health and humanitarian organizations. Unfortunately, the methodology is not the same, so it varies. The definition varies as well between between these different methods. Uh, but we still at least have a lot of visibility of the issue in the media. But despite this, the problem persists. Unfortunately, yes. Physicians for Human Rights, for example, is one of the few organizations that has been recording and reporting attacks against healthcare in Syria since 2011. And according to the numbers they published on their website, there's been almost 50% increase of the number of attacks against healthcare in Syria in 2018. Uh, compared to 2017, and the two months right after adopting the resolution, uh, June-July 2016, were the most dangerous months to be a health worker in Syria. We also have the uh, surveillance system 
uh, of the WHO, the World Health Organization, which, which is the system for uh, recording attacks uh, against healthcare. It recorded 717 attacks in 2019 and 233 just in the first four months of 2019. So the issue persists. We don't we can't really tell uh, if this is an increase or a decrease, mainly because we don't have uh, data from before the resolution to compare with. We have been struggling with underreporting for, for years now. It's really difficult to get the numbers right, to get the uh, correct level of violence. It's really difficult to, to estimate the exact, uh, the exact level of violence that is happening. Uh, mainly because we don't have uh, data to compare with from before the resolution. And so despite all of these protocols and resolutions and this body of international agreements about protecting healthcare workers, what what are the incentives for people who are targeting these groups? Why is it such an important thing to be targeting hospitals? And- it's really difficult to tell exactly what the motivation is for uh, for this type of violence and to do that we we really need to get into the heads of the people who are who are committing it but i would say from my personal experiences in syria and also from my observations from the countries where i worked and also from the stories that i'm collecting there might be three possible causes for this and the first one is actually using healthcare as uh, as a warfare to control the population or to punish them and we see this a lot probably in Syria most of the health workers there think or believe that they are being attacked because uh, certain parties to the conflict want to punish to punish them and to punish uh, their communities another possible motivation is actually disinformation and misinformation and um the third motivation would be disrespect, a general disrespect of civilians in general. Uh, like, for example, what we see in South Sudan is burning and attacking, in certain areas in South Sudan, burning and attacking all civilian properties, schools, huts, houses, and health facilities included. So there is no particular protection for health workers or for health facilities. It's just part of, they are being attacked as part of a general attack against all civilians, against whole areas. And just to illustrate some of the ongoing challenges that healthcare providers are facing, we've got some really interesting stories that you've collected. Could you tell us a bit more about where those stories came from and uh, the particular challenges that they reveal? The idea of the storytelling initiative came actually through my research while I was doing my research and I was doing my interviews for my research at Chatham House, I realized that what what we present as the problem is not particularly what they think is the problem. And this is what is commonly done. We go and ask them, so what do you think about this problem? And they will answer, but when you actually ask, if you ever ask them, is this actually a problem? They would say, well, maybe. It's not their biggest problem. So 
uh, I mean, even me, when I started my research, I, I was coming with a whole set of perceptions and questions that I presume that they definitely agree with. And I am Syrian myself. But then when I when I asked them, it was apparent that they see this problem in a very different way. They see the security challenge and the way to tackle it in a very different way. So, for example, when uh, we had the blockade on uh, the Hodeida port in, in Yemen, which is the main port bringing the humanitarian assistance uh, into Yemen, there was, a, there was an international outcry to stop that, to end this blockade, to allow humanitarian assistance to come in. And it's a very legitimate cause. And um, there was a lot of international efforts to, to, to end that. However, when I, during my interviews with, uh, with health providers, with local health providers from Yemen, this issue never came up. Really? No, because they, they actually had their own ways they had smugglers. Mm. So for them, it was not really the main problem. Right. They still had their own ways. So I want this initiative to bring the voices of local health providers uh, to the ears of whoever wants to listen to them. And instead of me or anyone else coming here and saying, well, here is what they think and here is what they need to do and here is what's happening, let them tell their stories and let them express uh, themselves. And I'm really humbled by the fact that I've, I've got so many of them really queuing to tell their stories, some of them even dressed up for the occasion, yeah. even, though you can't, even though you can't even see them. It's just an audio recording, but some of them dressed up for the occasion. Uh, others really use the high Fusha Arabic, which is... The Arabic, the version of the Arabic language that we use in uh, in in the media to tell the news or like in in the journals, uh, I'm really humbled by by seeing how much they want to tell their stories, and the amount of of uh, enthusiasm and resilience that uh, they are showing. And so we're going to listen to a few of them now. Um, I should say that as uh, as Rita mentioned, uh, the recordings are in Arabic, but we've very helpfully found translators and people who can record the English version um, for us. So you're going to hear a bit of the Arabic and then it will cut into the English translation um, of what they said. And we've got three testimonies from three different women from various parts of Syria. Who are we going to hear from first? So first we will hear from Rodine Baker, who works in a health centre in Afrin in the northwest of Syria. And she will be telling us about the challenge they are facing with uh, military uh, and armed men uh, being with their weapons within the health facilities. What makes me feel unsafe is in the mornings when I go to work, not knowing what awaits me on the way. Would there be an exchange of fire, chilling on the road? When I arrived at work, I'm always worried what if something happens around my house, a bombardment or something else? How am I supposed to get there on time for my daughter? At work, we experience a lot of problems with people in uniforms who think that they have priority because they are part of certain armed group, that they shouldn't queue and that they should be registered 
even if the doctor has the maximum possible number of patients. There is always this idea that they should be prioritized because they are armed. This makes us feel very unsafe despite the guards and the management. Whenever there are weapons around us, we will be afraid. We try to tell ourselves that it's okay and that they won't hurt us, but you never know what they might do if they get angry. Wow, so it must be so difficult for health facilities in these conflict zones to kind of maintain their kind of impartiality when you've got men with guns saying treat us and treat us first above the civilian population. Yes, and um, not only that, I mean, when you have a queue of patients, uh, health workers and um, first aiders that should do the triage, which is actually the very systematic way of prioritizing injuries and, and patients. And if you have uh, an armed person saying, well, treat me first or I kill you, you are uh, probably risking the lives of the other people in, in, in the health center who should have been treated uh, before. And definitely when you will have an armed man or a, a malicious in or in proximity to the health facility, the facility loses its protection under the international humanitarian law. And this is a very, very dangerous thing to do because we lose the case. The health facility loses its protection, health workers lose their protection, and we end up with situations where when you actually condemn the attack and you know that certain parties probably have committed this attack, the response would be like, Ah, well, it was a military target, so it was a legitimate attack. So it's quite dangerous from a legal legal point of view and also from uh, the human cost that it might cost um, to the community. Absolutely. So who next are we going to hear from? So next we will hear from Gofra Muhammad, who is an anaesthetist in a health centre uh, and in a hospital uh, in the northwest of Syria. I will never forget the explosion in the university when a fighter jet bombarded the university. We were 12 people, seven girls and five guys, and we were going to Al Ashrafiya. The rocket fell 10 meters from us. We froze in our places at the beginning. We didn't know what to do. And I only remember that someone pushed me from the back and told me to run. At first, we didn't believe this was happening and we still wanted to go and check on our friends. But then they told us to run and that we could come back later to find our friends. We ran and the second rocket landed where we had just been standing. So that targeting that Gufran describes of medical students actually at their university, like the next generation of doctors and healthcare providers for Syria, that it it shows how premeditated these things are, right? This is not just like ad hoc attacks, disparate things. Actually, they're saying we're going to go to source and we're going to try and disrupt the ability to provide healthcare in this region for years. Yes, and unfortunately, it goes beyond the bombardment and beyond the um, shelling of universities in two thousand. 11 and up until 2013, when almost all of Syria was uh, still under the regime's control, uh, there were regular raids in universities and lots of arrests. We lost 
so many medical students and so many health professionals, uh, even lecturers and master's students from the universities uh, in detention or uh, they were killed uh, under torture, including, uh, including one of my best friends who was literally arrested from within the medical school in Damascus University and uh, he he just disappeared and we we thought that he was um, in the detention center for two years and after two years one of the inmates who were with him in the cell uh, miraculously came out and he managed to contact uh, to contact the family and uh, he told uh, he told them that Ayham, he it's is his name. Ayham Razul. He told the family that uh, Ayham died four ye- four days after uh, after his detention. He had uh, internal bleeding because he was beating he was beaten so badly and he just died. And the inmates were just saying, um, "Look, he's dying. You have to take him to the emergency room." And uh, the reply was that, well, just let us know when he dies. So we take him out. And this is just one one story, and we have so many, unfortunately. So it's it's really systematic. Okay, well, so there's a third story that we've got collected. Mm-hmm. Who is this that we're going to hear from? So now we will hear from Maryam Suleiman, who was a psychological support team leader with autistic children before she was di- displaced twice. And uh, she tells us her story that is mainly about uh, access to health in besieged areas. It was Mother's Day when my brother was killed. He had promised me to come and visit. My mother is dead and he wanted to come to visit me. He was a fighter, and, he we, and we count him as a martyr, inshallah. He called me and said he is on his way, but we didn't have the chance to see him, and he got injured. When we had the chance to go and see him and how the tank had hit him, he was bleeding. I hugged him, and he was warm. I told my husband he's still alive. We still can save him but we were besieged in Kabun and there was no way to take him anywhere to be treated. And so I guess there we see the implications of systematic targeting of healthcare in that actually by the point that Mariam talks about, there is no there is no facility near them that they can go and take to seek serious urgent medical attention. There are no opportunities for them to do this. Yes, so they they couldn't leave Kabun, mm. which is a uh, district, it's part of eastern Ghouta, to the east of Damascus. So they couldn't leave. And at the same time, they didn't have health workers within because the field hospitals um, had been bombed as well and health workers had left or been targeted. So they were left with nothing. They were left with no one able to to provide that medical care. And unfortunately, this is a pattern that we see a lot in other conflicts as well. I remember I remember a child in South Sudan who comes from Jongli State, from the western part of Jongli State, and he was he was attacked 
in a uh, intercommunal fight in the area and because the m- the main hospital and the health centers were attacked and burnt two years before the incident uh, had happened his father literally needed to carry him for two days on his back crossing the swamps of south sudan and if anyone knows how south sudan looks like in the rainy season it's like uh, it's like the swamps are just extremely difficult to cross we literally needed to to use helicopters all the time he walked with his son on his back for two days and by the time he actually managed to find his way around the front lines and to get to the closest health center his son was just so sick and his uh, leg needed to be amputated i mean he's a, an eight years old child and we could have saved his leg so it's unfortunately, it's a pattern that's happening in so many other places. So those those three testimonies just give us a little snapshot into the really awful circumstances that a lot of these people are finding themselves in. But beyond grand-sounding UN resolutions, what are the policy measures that you think need to be considered to ensure that doctors are properly looked after in these areas? I, I would think that the first step would be actually to operationalize the the Security Council resolution. I mean, it's a strong framework to, to come up with measures. Uh, it's a very good base. I think the problem is that it focused on the very macro level and it focused on um, what the government should do and the parties of parties to conflict should do. And it doesn't touch on the micro level and it doesn't call for the governments and donors to support the micro level, to support local health providers in protecting themselves. So when we speak about the very international level and the Security Council resolution calling for governments to respect the protection of health care, a big part of it is about lifting and ending the impunity that Attackers, the parties that attacked healthcare, uh, are actually taken to courts, are actually questioned about what happened, and uh, in 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 the regular international courts. And we have the systems, we have existing bodies to do that. And when we speak about governments and the national legislations that could support the respect and protection of health care. Unfortunately, in many cases, I would say in most of the conflicts, national governments are par- are just one party to the conflict. And it's really difficult to get them to issue legislation that actually tells everyone to respect healthcare at a time when they are using attacking against healthcare as a as a warfare or at a time when they actually don't really care about healthcare and there are a few cases where certain governments actually issued certain legislations but then this has never been communicated to the people this has never been operationalized it's all about i think practical measures and actually operationalizing what we have already, because we have a lot of treaties and regulations. They are just not being used and not being respected. At the very micro level and the very local level, I think there is a lot to be done. And this is where the Security Council resolution should actually call 
for uh, the donors and the governments to support local health providers in uh, in protecting themselves. One of the main issues that came out from my research here at Chatham House was that local health providers find it really difficult to get funding for their protection and for their safety measures. So when even when they get funding for um, to deliver the health care that uh, they want to deliver, they find it extremely difficult to convince the donors that uh, they need an extra uh, extra budget uh, for their protection. Mm. So I think the security resolution should consider that and should call for the government to support this approach. And maybe the reason for not improving the situation is that we we don't understand the situation at all. Maybe we should start a bottom-up approach to understand the situation and eventually to come up with the right solutions. Mm. Well, hopefully your Health Workers on the Frontline initiative will contribute to that bottom-up approach, right? Collecting the experiences of these people to actually properly understand the problems Fingers crossed. that are being faced. Let's hope so. Um, uh, Rita, I think we're very near the end now, but just before we finish out of all of these people that you've that you've spoken to that you've heard from what's been the surprising takeaway for you what's what surprised you the most i think the first thing was their resilience it's incredible how each one of them said that they are learning a lot and that they they are just there and they will never leave because what they are doing is so important to the communities and that they will stay strong for them. And also the role of the female health workers, which is something that has not been looked at before, to have the gender lens when we look at the security issues. It's fascinating how resilient they are and the stories that they are telling of actually supporting the whole family after their uh, fathers or brothers are not able to to support the family and the numbers they are starting all over again and they are displaced again and they are starting all over again building something different supporting their families and and just just they're just amazing I am humbled to to have listened to their stories. I am very humbled that they wanted to tell their stories. This is actually another very surprising element because when I started the initiative I wasn't I wasn't really sure if if they will actually want to say to tell their stories because I I just wondered how they would think about it and I I thought oh, maybe they will think, oh this is just another another person asking us what we think and then just disappearing in, in on the other part of the world. And I am very humbled and very happy that they are very keen to tell their stories and I would try as much as possible to keep telling, to keep recording their stories and to, to, to keep this bridge that is bringing their stories to, to the attention of, uh, of people here. Rita Daib, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Ben. Thank you very much. Well, listen, congratulations, Ben, and thank you, Rita. That's really 
important stuff. Yeah, really, really interesting. And tomorrow is the anniversary of the adoption of the UN Security Resolution 2286 about protecting health workers in conflict. And we will hopefully keep you posted with more of Risa's work soon. She's hoping to get the rest of the stories she's collected so far. She's collected 33 different testimonies so far from Syrian health workers. She's hoping to get them all online in a kind of repository mm-hmm. soon and we'll obviously share the link and let you know when that's available because some of the stories are pretty astounding yeah so yeah and but it's just good to hear those voices i think absolutely really important to hear those yeah. voices so yeah next week hopefully we'll have well in a couple of weeks we'll have a slightly more upbeat episode yeah definitely but before we go we have one last little nugget of joy for you from hans Gunani from the europe program at chatham house who's just started a new project and has got a bit of a call to arms. A call to arms. So he's now going to explain what that is. Yes, Hans. And I'm going to grill him for about six minutes. What? And then we will leave you. Mm. Hands down the best way to uh, end an episode ever. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimpson and you've been listening to Undercurrents. I'm here with Hans Kudnani, who is, um, I mean, a big cheese in our Europe programme. And you're here to explain a new project for us. Yes. Um, well, thank you for having me. And uh, the new project is about democracy and technology uh, in Europe. Um, we're trying to think about, the, I suppose, the crisis of liberal democracy that everyone's been talking about, particularly in the last you know, few years since Brexit and Trump. Um, specifically in a European context, though, the rise of populism and Mm. so on. Um, But then to think about where technology fits into that picture, um, both as a possible driver of the crisis, um, but potentially also as part of the solution to the crisis. And when you say technology, what what do you mean? Well, we mean digital technology broadly. (laughs) Um, We don't just mean social media, although that's the bit of it that everybody talks about the most at the moment for obvious reasons Um, but it seems to us that there's all kinds of other ways in which digital technology is changing democracy partly changing political discourse but also changing the way that that political activists mobilize for example Um, and you can see depending on your own political perspective sort of good examples of that and bad examples of that so you know it's interesting that for example in the US as they were focusing on, on Europe in this project but to take an American example President Obama used many of the same tools um, that subsequently have been used by President Trump. Similarly, Black Lives Matter uses many of the same tools that the Tea Party and, and other groups that we might not approve of use. And when you say Europe, I mean, what sort of countries are you looking at? Well, the whole of Europe, um, so not just the EU. Mm-hmm. Um, we're focusing really across Europe, partly because what's so interesting is that you have different types of political systems, you know, from the French, um, very centralised presidential system through to the British parliamentary system, through to the German system, which is a very federal system. So you have all these different political systems, and yet none of them seem to be immune from this crisis of liberal democracy, which to me at least suggests that... Um, 
um, there's no obvious institutional fix. So, for example, in Britain, you know, lots of people will argue that the the solution to Britain's sort of institutional systemic problems in politics would be to introduce proportional representation or to replace the House of Lords or some kind of institutional fix like that. Mm-hmm. Seems to me there's a deeper problem that affects even countries with political systems that might be sort of exemplary from the point of view who make the, of the of people who make those kind of arguments. So, I mean. This sounds massive as a project. How have you gone about even starting to look at this? Well, it is a big, <laughs> a big, big set of questions. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think we, we, you know, we wouldn't, we're not claiming uh, that at the end of this process, you know, in the autumn, we're going to have fixed democracy. Yeah. Um, I think um, a big part of what we're hoping the project can do is to try to develop a kind of an intellectual framework for thinking about how you think about these problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and in particular, as I say, about the relationship between technology uh, and democracy is technology part of the problem is it part of the solution um, how does it relate to populism some of these kinds of questions and normally researchers come on the podcast to tell us about a, podca- uh, a, a project that's finished yeah but you're here sort of in the well, earlier stages why so we thought that it would be slightly odd to do a project on democracy and technology in Europe and yet to do it in a very closed, analogue, old-fashioned kind of way. We thought that it would be interesting to think about how we can sort of open up the research process and invite people to contribute to it. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> at the moment, the phase of the project we're in is one where we're inviting people to make submissions. We have three research questions. Um, the first is essentially what impact is technology having on democracy in Europe. The second is, given the technological and social change that's taking place, how can democracy in Europe be made more responsive? And the third is, how can technology help do that? So we have these three research questions. They're on our website and we're inviting people to make submissions and to comment on other people's submissions. And do you have to be in Europe? to do that and does Britain count as in Europe at the moment? Britain definitely counts um, as being in Europe as yeah. I say this isn't about the EU it's about Europe defined more broadly than the EU so yeah. even if Brexit goes ahead which is looking increasingly uncertain at the moment yeah. um, Britain will still be in Europe as far as our project is concerned Excellent. and in the broader sense And no, you don't have to physically be in Europe. We welcome contributions from anyone around the world. Mm -hmm. In fact, there may be interesting examples that Europe can learn from about how democracies in other parts of the world have become more responsive. And so, yes, we very much welcome contributions from anywhere. Um, But the focus of the project is very much on Europe. So when we come to write the final report in the autumn, it'll be focusing on how democracy in Europe specifically can be revitalised. Okay, great. Well, we'll put a link to the site at the bottom underneath this podcast as well. So after people have submitted, I mean, is there a deadline for submissions? Uh, We're going to keep this open for the next couple of months. um, And then there'll be another phase of the project after that, which will be even more interactive. And hopefully I can come on again and tell people (laughs) about that when, um, when we're ready with that. Brilliant. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, everybody should go and go and submit. And yeah, it sounds really interesting. So we'll put the link underneath. So thanks so much, Hans. Great. Thank you. Bye.